The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. hour-long program of science fiction and fantasy. I am your host, Beverly Prentice. I hope you enjoy the program. If so, please drop a line to beyond3x5 at gmail.com. The Wretched and the Beautiful by E. Lily Yu. The aliens arrived unexpectedly at 6.42 on a hot August evening, dropping with a shriek of metal strained past its limits onto the white sands of one of the last pristine beaches on Earth. The black hulk of the saucer ground into the sand and stopped, steaming. Those of us who had been splashing in the surf or stamping rows of sandcastles fled up the slope, clutching our towels. Once our initial fright dissipated, curiosity set in, and we stayed with the policemen and emergency technicians who pulled up in wailing, flashing trucks. It was all quite exciting, since nothing out of the ordinary seemed to happen anymore. Gone were the days when acting on conviction could change the world, when good came of good and evil to evil. One of the policemen fired an experimental shot or two, but the bullets ricocheted off the black metal and lodged in a palm tree. Don't shoot, one man said. You might make them angry. You might hit one of us. The guns remained cocked, but no more bullets zinged off the ship. We waited. At sunset, a pounding began inside the ship. No hatches sprang open, no ray guns or periscopes protruded. There was only the pounding, growing ever more frantic and erratic. What if they're trapped? One of us said. We looked at one another. Some of us had left and returned with the pistols that did not fit in our swimming trunks. A whole armory was pointed at the black disk of metal, half buried in the beach. The pounding ceased. Nothing followed. We conferred, then conscripted a machinist, who, with our assistance, hauled her ponderous cutters and blow torches over the soft sand and set to work on the saucer. We stood back. While the machinist worked, any sounds from the saucer were drowned out by her tools. With precise and deliberate motion, she cut a thin line around the disk's circumference. Sparks flew up where the blade met the strange metal, which howled in unfamiliar tones. When her work was done, she packed her equipment and departed. The aliens had failed to vaporize her. We let out the collective breath we had been holding. Minutes 
crawled past. At last, with a peculiar clang, the top half of the saucer seesawed upward. In the deepening dusk, we could barely distinguish the dark limbs straining to raise it. Many monsters or one, we wondered. Drop your weapons, one policeman barked. The upper part of the saucer sagged for a moment, concealing whatever was within. From within the ship, a voice said in perfectly comprehensible French, We do not have weapons. We do not have anything. Come out where we can see you, the policeman said. The rest of us were glad that someone confident and capable, someone who was not us, was handling the matter. It was too dark to see clearly, and so, at the policeman's command and at the other end of his semi-automatic, the occupants of the ship, the aliens, our first real aliens, were marched up the beach to the neon strip of casinos, while we followed, gaping, gawking, knowing nothing with certainty except that we were witnessing history and perhaps would even play a role in it. The lurid glow of marquees and brothels revealed to us a shivering, shambling crowd, some slumped like apes, some clutching their young, some had five limbs, some four, and some three. Their joints were crab-like, and their movement both resembled ours and differed to such a degree that it sickened us to watch. There were sixty-four of them, including the juveniles. Although we were unacquainted with their biology, it was plain that none were in good health. Is there a place we can stay? the alien said. Hotels were sought throughout the city. Hoteliers protested, citing unknown risk profiles, inadequate equipment, fearful and unprepared staff, and indignant clientele, and stains from space filth impervious to detergent. Who was going to pay anyway? They had businesses to run and families to feed. One woman from among us offered to book a single room for the aliens for two nights, that being all she could afford on her teacher's salary. She said this with undisguised hope, as if she thought her offer would inspire others. But silence followed her remark, and we avoided her eyes. We were here on holiday, and holidays were expensive. The impasse was broken at three in the morning, when in helicopters, in charter buses, and in taxis, the journalists arrived. It was clear now that our guests were the responsibility of national, if not international, organizations, and that they would be cared for by people who were paid more than we were. Reassured that something would be done and not by us, we dispersed to our hotel rooms and immaculate beds. When we awoke late, trays of poached eggs on toast and orange juice, headlines on our phones declared that first contact had been made, that the Fermi paradox was no more, 
that science and engineering were poised to make breakthroughs not only with the new metal that the spaceship was composed of, but also the various exotic molecules that had bombarded the ship and become embedded in the hull during its long flight. The flight had indeed been long. One African francophone newspaper had thought to interview the aliens, who explained in deteriorating French how their universal translator worked, how they had fled a cleansing operation in their star system, how they had watched their home planet heated to sterility and stripped of its atmosphere, how they had set course for a likely-looking planet in the Gord Belt, how they wanted nothing but peace and please, they were exhausted. Could they have a place to sleep and a power source for their translator? When we slid our sandals and stepped onto the dazzling beach, which long ago, before the garbage tides, was what many beaches looked like, we saw the crash ship again, substantiation of the previous night's fever dream. It leached rainbow fluids onto the sand. Dark shapes huddled under its sawn-off lid. Many of us averted our eyes from that picture of unmitigated misery and admired instead the gem-like sky, the seabirds squalling over the creamy surf, the parasols propped like mushrooms along the shore. One or two of us edged close to the wreck and dropped small somethings. A beach towel, a bucket hat, a bag of chips, a half-full margarita in its salted glass, then scuttled away. This was no longer our problem. It belonged to our governors, our senators, our heads of state. Surely they and their moneyed friends would assist these wretched creatures. So it was with consternation that we turned on our televisions that night in the hotel bar and in our hotel rooms to hear a spokesman explain, as our heads of state shook hands, that the countries in their interregional coalition would resettle a quota of the aliens in inverse proportion to national wealth. This was ratified over the protests of the poorest members. In fact, over the protests of the aliens themselves, who did not wish to be separated and had only one translation device among them. The couple of countries still recovering from Russian depredations were assigned six aliens each while the countries of high fashion and cold beer received two or three to be installed in middle-class neighborhoods. In this way, the burden of these aliens, as well as any attendant medical or technological advances, would be shared. The cost would be high, as these aliens had stated their need for an environment with a specific mixture of helium and neon, as well as a particular collection of nutrients most abundant in shrimp and crab. The latter, in our overfished and polluted times, were not easy to obtain. This was appalling news. We, who had stitched 
skimped and pinched all year for one luxurious day on a clean beach would have our wallets rifled to feed and house the very creatures whose presence denied us a section of our beach and the vistas we had paid for. Now we would find these whores waiting for us at home, in the nicer house next to ours, or at the community pool, eating crab while we sweated to put chicken on the table and pay off our mortgages. Who were they to land on our dwindling planet and reduce our scarce resources further? They could go back to their star system. Their own government could take care of them. We could loan them a rocket or two if they liked. We could be generous. Indeed, in the days that followed, our legislators took our calls, then took this tack. If they meant to stay, shouldn't our visitors earn their daily bread like the rest of us? And if biological limitations made this impossible, shouldn't they depart to find a more hospitable clime? We repeated these speeches over the dinner table. Our performances grew louder and more vehement after a news report about one of the aliens eating its neighbor's cat. The distraught woman pointed her finger at the camera, at all of us watching, and accused us of forcing a monster upon her because we had no desire to live beside it ourselves. There was enough truth in her words to bite. It did not matter that six days later, the furry little Lothario was found at a gas station, ten miles from home, having scrapped and loved his way across the countryside. By then we had stories of these aliens raiding chicken coops and sucking the blood from dogs and unsuspecting infants. A solid number of these politicians campaigned for office on a platform of alien repatriation, and many of them won. Shortly afterwards, one of two aliens resettled in Huntingdon, England, was set upon and beaten to death with bricks by a gang of teenaged girls and boys. Then in Houston, a juvenile alien was doused in gasoline and set on fire. We picked at our dinners without appetite, worrying about these promising youths who had been headed for sports and scholarships in elite universities. The aliens jeopardized all our futures and clouded all our dreams. We wrote letters, signed petitions, and prayed to the heavens for salvation. It came. From out of a silent sky, rockets shaped like needles and polished to a high gloss, descended upon six of the major capitals of the world. About an hour after landing, giving the television crews time to jostle for a position, and at precisely at the same instant, six slim doors whispered open, and the most gorgeous beings we had ever seen strode down extruded silver steps and planted themselves before the houses of power, waiting to be invited in. And they were. Forgive us for imposing on your valuable time, 
these ambassadors said simultaneously in the official language of the six legislatures. Cameras panned over them, and excitement crackled through us, for this was the kind of history we wanted to be a part of. When they emerged from their needle ships, their bodies were fluid and reflective, like columns of quicksilver. But with every minute among us, they lost more and more of their formless brilliance, dimming and thickening, acquiring eyes, foreheads, chins, and hands. Within half an hour, they resembled us perfectly. Or rather, they resembled what we dreamed of being, the better versions of ourselves who turned heads, drove fast cars, and recognized the six most expensive whiskies by smell alone, whose names topped the donor rolls of operas, orchestras, and houses of worship, who were admired, respected, adored. We looked at these beautiful creatures whom we no longer thought of as aliens and saw ourselves as we could be. If the lottery or the bank or our birthplace, if our genes or a lucky break, if only. We listened raptly as they spoke in rich and melodious voices, voices we trusted implicitly, that called to mind loved ones and sympathetic teachers. A terrible mistake has been made, they said, because of our negligence, a gang of war criminals guilty of unspeakable things, namely, here their translators failed, and the recitation of crimes came as a series of clicks, coughs, and trills that nevertheless retained the enchantment of their voices escaped their confinement and infiltrated your solar system. We are deeply sorry for the trouble our carelessness has caused you. We admire your patience and generosity in dealing with them, though they have grossly abused your trust. Now we have come to set things right. Remit the 64 aliens to us, and we will bring them back to their home system. They will never disturb you again. The six beautiful beings clasped their hands and stepped back. Silence fell throughout the legislative chambers of the world. Here was our solution. Here was our freedom. We had trusted and been fooled. We had suffered unjustly. We were good people with clean consciences, sorely tried by circumstances outside our control. But here was justice, as bright and shining as we imagined justice to be. We sighed with relief. In Berlin, a woman stood. Even the little ones, she said, even the children are guilty of the crimes you allege. Their development is not comparable to yours, the beautiful one in Berlin said, while his compatriots in their respective state houses stood silent with inscrutable smiles. The small ones you see are not children as you know them, innocent and helpless. Think of them as beetle larvae. They are destructive and voracious, sometimes more so than the immature adults. Still, 
said this lone woman. I think of them as children. I have seen the grown ones feeding and caring for them. I do not know what crimes they have committed, since our language cannot describe your concepts, but they have sought refuge here, and I am especially unwilling to return the children to you. The whispers of the assembly became murmurs, then exclamations. Throw her out. She does not speak for us. You are misled, the beautiful one said, and for a moment its smile vanished, and a breath of the icy void between the stars blew over us. Then everything was as it had been. We must ask the aliens themselves what they want, the woman said. But now her colleagues were standing too and shouting and phone lines were ringing as we called in support of the beautiful ones and her voice was drowned out. We have an understanding then, the beautiful one said to clamorous agreement and wild applause. The cameras stopped there at that glorious scene and all of us warm and satisfied with our participation in history, turned off our televisions and went to work or to pick up our children from soccer or to bed or to the liquor store to gaze at top-shelf whiskey. A few of us, the unfortunate few who lived beside the aliens, saw the long silver needles descend point first onto our neighbor's lawns and the silver shapes emerge with chains and glowing rods. We twitched the kitchen curtains closed and dialed up our music. Three hours later, there was no sign of any of the aliens, the wretched or the beautiful, except for a few blackened patches of grass and wisps of smoke that curled and died. All was well. The Legend of Thorguna A ship from Iceland chanced to winter in a haven near Helgefels. Among the passengers was a woman named Thorguna, a native of the Hebrides, who was reported by the sailors to possess garments and household furniture of a fashion far surpassing those used in Iceland. Thurida sister of the pontiff Snorro and wife of Thorad, a woman of a vain and covetous disposition, attracted by these reports, made a visit to the stranger, but could not prevail upon her to display her treasures. Persisting, however, in her inquiries, she pressed Thorgona to take up her abode at the house of Thorad. The Hebridean reluctantly assented, but added that as she could labor at every usual kind of domestic industry, she trusted in that manner to discharge the obligation she might lie under to the family without giving any part of her property in recompense of her lodging. As Thurida continued to urge her request, Orguna accompanied her to Froda, the house of Thorod, where the seamen deposited a huge chest and cabinet containing the property of her new guest, which Thurida viewed with curious and covetous eyes. So soon as they had pointed out to Thurguna the place assigned for her bed, 
she opened the chest and took forth such an embroidered bed coverlet and such a splendid and complete set of tapestry hangings and bed furniture of English linen interwoven with silk as had never been seen in Iceland. Sell to me, said the covetous matron, this fair bed furniture. Believe me, answered Thurguna, I will not lie upon straw in order to feed thy pomp and vanity. An answer which so greatly displeased Thurida that she never again repeated her request. Thorguna, to whose character subsequent events added something of a mystical solemnity, is described as being a woman of a tall and stately appearance, of a dark complexion, and having a profusion of black hair. She was advanced in age, assiduous in the labors of the field and of the loom, a faithful attendant upon divine worship, grave silent, and solemn in domestic society. She had little intercourse with the household of Thorod and showed particular dislike to two of its inmates. They were Thor, who, having lost a leg in the skirmish between Thorbjorn and Thorarin, the black, was called Thorin Wildlegger, wooden leg, from the substitute he had adopted and his wife, Thor Grima, Thor Wood, Wooden Leg, wicked sorceress, from her supposed skill in enchantments. Kiartan, the son of Thorida, a boy of excellent promise, was the only person of the household to whom Thorgona showed much affection, and she was much vexed at times when the childish petulance of the boy made an indifferent return to her kindness. After this mysterious stranger had dwelt at Froda for some time, and while she was laboring in the hayfield with other members of the family, a sudden cloud from the northern mountain led Thorid to anticipate a heavy shower. He instantly commanded the hayworkers to pile up in ricks the quantity which each had been engaged in turning to the wind. It was afterwards, remembering that Thorgunna did not pile up her portion, but left it spread on the field. The cloud approached with great celerity and sank so heavily around the farm that it was scarce possible to see beyond the limits of the field. A heavy shower next descended, and so soon as the clouds broke away and the sun shone forth, it was observed that it had rained blood. That which fell upon the ricks of the other laborers soon dried up, but what Thorgunna had wrought remained wet with gore. The unfortunate Hebridean, appalled at the omen, betook herself to her bed and was seized with a mortal illness. On the approach of death, she summoned Thorod, her landlord, and instructed to him the disposition of her property and effects. Let my body, said she, be transported to Skaholt, for my mind presages that in that place shall be founded the most distinguished church in this island. 
let my golden ring be given to the priests who shall celebrate my obesquies. And do thou indemnify thyself the funeral charges out of my remaining effects. To the wife, I bequeath my purple mantle in order that by this sacrifice to her avarice, I may secure the right of disposing the rest of my effects at my own pleasure. But for my bed with its coverings, hangings, and furniture, I entreat they may be all consigned to the flames. I do not desire this because I envy anyone the possession of these things after my death, but because I wish those evils to be avoided, which plainly I foresee will happen if my will be altered in the slightest particular. Thorod promised faithfully to execute the extraordinary testament in the most exact manner. Accordingly, so soon as Thorgunna was dead, her faithful executor prepared a pile for burning her special splendid bed. Thorita entered and learned with anger and astonishment the purpose of these preparations. To the remonstrances of her husband, she answered that the menaces of future danger were only caused by Thorguna's selfish envy, who did not wish anyone should enjoy her treasures after peace. Then, finding Thorogood inaccessible to argument, she had recourse to caresses and blandishments, and at length extorted permission to separate from the rest of the bed furniture the tapestried curtains and coverlid. The rest was consigned to the flames. In obedience to the will of the testator, the body of Thorguna being wrapped in new linen and placed in a coffin, was next to be transported through the precipices and morasses of Iceland. To the distant district she had assigned for her place of sepulture. A remarkable incident occurred on the way. The transporters of the body arrived at evening late, weary and drenched with rain, in a house called Nether Ness, where the niggard hospitality of the proprietor only afforded them house room, without any supply of food or fuel. But so soon as they entered, an unwanted noise was heard in the kitchen of the mansion, and the figure of a woman, soon recognized to be the deceased Thorgama, was seen busily employed in preparing victuals. Their inhospitable landlord, being made acquainted with this frightful circumstance, readily agreed to supply every refreshment which was necessary, on which the vision instantly disappeared. The apparition having become public, they had no reason to ask twice for hospitality as they proceeded on their journey, and they came to Skullhout, where Thorgona, with all due ceremonies of religion, was deposited quietly in the grave. But the consequences of the breach of her testament were felt severely at Froda. The dwelling at Froda was a simple and patriarchal structure, built according to the fashion used by the wealthy among the Icelanders. The apartments were very large, 
and a part boarded off contained the beds of the family. On either side was a sort of storeroom, one of which contained meal, the other dried fish. Every evening large fires were lighted in this apartment for dressing the victuals, and the domestics of the family usually sat around them for a considerable time until supper was prepared. On the night when the conductors of Thorguna's funeral returned to Froda, there appeared, visible to all who were present, a meteor, or spectral appearance, resembling a half-moon, which glided around the boarded walls of the mansion in an opposite direction to the course of the sun, and continued to perform its revolutions until the domestics retired to rest. This apparition was renewed every night during a whole week, and was pronounced by Thor with the wooden leg to presage pestilence or mortality. Shortly after, a herdsman showed signs of mental alienation and gave various indications of having sustained the persecution of evil demons. This man was found dead in his bed one morning and then commenced a scene of ghost-seeing, unheard of in the annals of superstition. The first victim was Thor. Going out of doors one evening, he was grappled by the specter of the deceased shepherd as he attempted to re-enter the house. His wooden leg stood him in poor stead in such an encounter. He was hurled to the earth and so fearfully beaten that he died in consequence of the bruises. Thor was no sooner dead than his ghost associated itself to that of the herdsman and joined him in pursuing and assaulting the inhabitants of Froda. Meantime, an infectious disorder spread fast among them, and several of the bondsmen died, one after the other. Strange portents were seen within doors. The meal was displaced and mingled, and the dried fish flung about in a most alarming manner, without any visible agent. At length, while the servants were forming their evening circle around the fire, a specter resembling the head of a seal fish was seen to emerge out of the pavement of the room, bending its round black eyes full on the tapestried bed curtains of Thorguna. Some of the domestics ventured to strike at this figure, but far from giving way, it rather erected itself further from the floor until Kjartan, who seemed to have a natural predominance over these supernatural prodigies, seizing a huge forge hammer, struck the seal repeatedly on the head and compelled it to disappear. Forcing it down into the floor, as if he had driven a stake into the earth. This prodigy was found to intimate a new calamity. Thorid, the master of the family, had some time before set forth on a voyage to bring home a cargo of dried fish. But in crossing the river Enna, the skiff was lost and he perished with the servants who attended him. 
A solemn feast was held at Froda in memory of the deceased, when to the astonishment of the guests, the apparition of Thorod and his followers seemed to enter the apartment dripping with water. Yet this vision excited less horror than might have been expected, for the Icelanders, though nominally Christians, retained among other pagan superstitions a belief that the specters of such drowned persons as had been favorably received by the goddess Rana were wont to show themselves at their funeral feast. They saw, therefore, with some composure, Thorod and his dripping attendants plant themselves by the fire, from which all mortal guests retreated to make room for them. It was supposed this apparition would not be renewed after the conclusion of the festival, but so far were their hopes disappointed that so soon as the morning guests had departed, the fires being lighted, Thorod and his comrades marched in on one side, drenched as before with water. On the other entered Thorer, herding all those who had died in the pestilence and who appeared covered with dust. Both parties seized the seats by the fire, while the half-frozen and terrified domestics spent the night without either light or warmth. The same phenomenon took place the next night, though the fires had been lighted in a separate house, and at length Kiartan was obliged to compound matters with the specters by kindling a large fire for them in the principal apartment, and one for the family and domestics in a separate hut. This prodigy continued during the whole Feast of Joel. Other portents also happened to appall this devoted family. The contagious disease again broke forth, and when anyone fell, a sacrifice to it, his specter was sure to join the troop of persecutors, who had now almost full possession of the mansion of Froda. Thorgrima Galdrakina, wife of Thor, was one of these victims, and in short, of thirty servants belonging to the household, eighteen died, and five fled for fear of the apparitions, so that only seven remained in the service of Kiartan. Kiartan had now recourse to the advice of his maternal uncle Snorro, in consequence of whose counsel, which will perhaps appear surprising to the reader, judicial measures were instituted against the specters. A Christian priest was, however, associated with Thordo Kosa, son of Snorro, and with Kiartan, to superintend and sanctify the proceedings. The inhabitants were regularly summoned to attend upon the inquest, as in a cause between man and man, and the assembly was constituted before the gate of the mansion. Just as the specters had assumed their wanted station by the fire, Kiartan boldly ventured to approach them, and snatching a brand from the fire, he commanded the tapestry belonging to Thorguna to be carried out of doors, set fire to it, 
and reduced it to ashes with all other ornaments of her bed, which had been so inconsiderately preserved at the request of Thurida. A tribunal being then constituted with the usual legal solemnities, a charge was preferred by Kiartan against Thor with the wooden leg, by Thordo Causa against Thorod, and by others chosen as accusers against the individual specters present, accusing them of molesting the mansion and introducing death and disease among its inhabitants. All the solemn rites of judicial procedure were observed on this singular occasion. Evidence was adduced, charges given, and the cause formally decided. It does not appear that the ghosts put themselves on their defense, so that sentence of ejectment was pronounced against them individually in due and legal form. When Thor heard the judgment, he arose and saying, I have sat while it was lawful for me to do so, left the apartment by the door opposite to that at which the judicial assembly was constituted. Each of the specters, as it heard its individual sentence, left the place, saying something which indicated its unwillingness to depart, until Thorod himself was solemnly called on to leave. We have here no longer, said he, a peaceful dwelling, therefore will we remove. Kiartan then entered the hall with his followers and the priest with holy water, and celebration of a solemn mass completed the conquest over the goblins which had been commenced by the power and authority of the Icelandic law. Ohio Morning with Songbirds by Joshua Gage This is corn. The corn is in a field. The corn needs sunlight and water and space to grow, and she's getting up early, the farmer before dawn. Only now she's staring at the horizon, where the black smoke continues. If you look behind her faded overalls, to the saucer embedded in the earth, where it tore up the corn, you will wonder, why is the door closed? What's happening in the saucer's inconceivable belly? Are the aliens in there testing the air, preparing their suits for EVA, do they think? The farmer rude for not running up and helping them clamber out? The emergency porthole are offering to give them a lift to the desert to gather up uranium. Perhaps the farmer isn't there yet. Perhaps she slept in this morning curled in the arms of her wife. Perhaps the nuclear wake of a saucer hurtling itself into their cornfield seared them to the bed in pyroclastic terror, their brief screams lost in the shockwaves. If you look hard enough, though, past the still-glowing embers of the farmhouse, ruins past the corn, past the dark trench in the Ohio soil, past the steam curling from the saucer's hull, you will see the first 
pink hints of sunrise and hear the warblers and tanagers announce the morning. Let us go into the saucer, you and I, to listen to the songs of the morning. Let's hide there together for as long as these strangers will allow. Sphinx by Mary Soon Lee Outstretched on sun-warm limestone, the Sphinx surveys the rabble, seeking admittance to her city. Her adopted city, mighty Thebes, Thebes, which gifts her with gold and with its chorused prayers. Thebes, which entrusts her to guard its entrance from the unworthy, from the riffraff who flinch at the restless lash of her tail, who stammer if she, riddle mistress, demands an answer as their fee, who gaze up in appalled alarm as if she were a monstrosity a deformed, mismatched merger of lioness with woman and eagle, ignorantly inverting the truth that lioness, woman, eagle are refracted distortions of her pure and perfect form. She yawns wide, swishes her tail, waiting for the onset of dusk, the closing of the city gates, the stooped old man who comes, burdened with blankets and wine, to share the night watch, warming the chill hours with news from home. High Rise by David C. Kopaska Merkel Icarus hits send, double clicks on the next file. One of hundreds, he sighs. Smoldering rays of the setting sun slant through his office window. He's burning up. I've got to get out of here, he thinks. I want to fly like Apollo. High above the world, I'd love to visit Barbados. His shoulder blades itch. He just can't sit still. Times like this he really misses. The old man, crazy, yes, but he knew how to think outside the box, and he could make anything. High Rise by David C. Kopaska Merkel Icarus hits send, double clicks on the next file. One of hundreds, he sighs. Smoldering rays of the setting sun slant through his office window. He's burning up. I've got to get out of here, he thinks. I want to fly like Apollo. High above the world, I'd love to visit Barbados. His shoulder blades itch. He just can't sit still. Times like this he really misses. The old man, crazy, yes. But he knew how to think outside the box, and he could make anything. What Remains by Terry Yanetti
A seashell fragment, egret white, glacier cold, jagged edges like a puzzle piece, one side speckless, but on the other a purple smudge that could be half a spiral galaxy, what's left of a star map.